Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, December 31st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, January 3rd. Second. 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 I knew I was going to screw that up. Sorry, guys. Happy New Year, everyone. Awesome. How's everybody doing right now on New Year's Eve? Do you guys have anything planned for tonight besides being safe? Hanging in there. It's going to be low-key. Um, a little less low-key than last year, but, um, you know, in Spain, there's a curfew right now, and a lot of places are closed because of the surge in cases. So I'm going to do my darndest to not get COVID <laughs> tonight. Um, I might, uh, where I'm at and like the thing I like to do most on new year's is see the fireworks. And there used to be fireworks mm-hmm. at grand army plaza in Brooklyn every year, but it's, I think this is the second or third year in a row that they've been canceled. So, but there's people in my part of Brooklyn that tend to do fireworks. So I think I'm just going to like walk outside when I know it's about midnight Mm-hmm. And just find a spot where I can see them and just, you know, have a party in my head. On today's episode, we're doing something a little different. We thought it'd be cool to do kind of a follow-up episode on some of the stories that we covered in 2021. Just to see where some of uh, how the world's changed or not and um, how these stories are still relevant today. So for local news, we'll be discussing ICE contracts in New Jersey. Well, uh, for national news, we'll have an update about the January 6th committee. For world news, we'll have an update about Haiti and the five men convicted of assassinating their president. And we'll have some good news about COVID. So we're going to go ahead and kick off our local news segment. Emily, take it away. All righty. So this story is revisiting an issue that I talked about on the show back in January and then again in August of 2021. Uh, which is about ICE contracts with New Jersey prisons. So in January, I talked about a hunger strike by ICE detainees that had lasted at least 30 days and which was in protest of the conditions at the facility as well as their detainment in general. Uh, In August, I covered a report in NJ Spotlight News by Monsi Alvarado titled, While Murphy Waits to Act, ICE Extends Detainee Contract. In June, lawmakers sent Murphy a bill banning deals with ICE and NJ. Now a private prison has renewed its contract. And now I actually have a somewhat good update uh, that actually came later in August, but which I didn't have the chance to discuss again on the show. It comes from an August 20th article on NJ.com by Brent Johnson titled, NJ Bans Jails from New ICE Contracts as Murphy Signs Law. The article explains, quote, Local and private jails in New Jersey are now banned from signing contracts to hold federal immigration detainees under a bill Governor Phil Murphy signed into law Friday. The law, A5207, bars local and private jails or detention centers from entering into, renewing, or extending immigration detention agreements with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, otherwise known as ICE. New Jersey becomes the fifth U.S. state to limit or ban such contracts. Uh, And also, FYI, the other states that ban those contracts with ICE are California, Illinois, Maryland, and Washington, which I found on a New York Post article, actually, funny enough. But uh, anyway, so the the NJ.com article goes on to explain, quote, the measure does not affect current ICE contracts, only future ones. 
Bergen and Hudson counties still have contracts, and a privately owned jail in Elizabeth recently extended its contract until 2023, while this bill sat on Murphy's desk and the governor was on a 10-day family vacation to Italy. Quote, under the ICE contracts, detainees wait at the local facilities for court hearings as they face the possibility of deportation. The deals have netted millions of dollars for local governments who have charged ICE as much as $120 a day per detainee. Democratic leaders of Bergen, Essex, and Hudson counties have defended the contracts. But progressive advocates and immigrant groups have long opposed the centers, saying they violate human rights and often neglect health and sanitary standards. Their push got louder as the number of detainees grew under a crackdown on immigration in former President Donald Trump's administration. Protests have often included hunger strikes by detainees. Quote, after stalling for months, both houses of the Democratic-controlled state legislature, state legislature passed this bill in June along partisan lines, with a majority of Republicans opposing the move. It was propelled by a sudden announcement by Essex County to end their contract at the county jail. State Senate Majority Leader Loretta Weinberg, a Democrat from Bergen, a main sponsor of the law, said Friday that county jails and other entities should be used to house people accused of real crimes, not to arbitrarily hold people who are trying to live their lives and contribute like anyone else. Many of these individuals are immigrants who have lived in New Jersey for years, enriching our communities and strengthening local economies, Weinberg added. This is a common sense bill and a humane one. However, there is a downside to this move. Uh, quote, the New Jersey State Bar Association attorneys lobbied Murphy to veto this bill, arguing their clients would be sent to ICE facilities out of state without the protections afforded to them in the Garden State and away from their attorneys and family members. The NJSBA has never supported the detention of non-citizens without any basis for doing so, uh, Dominic Carmanola, the association's president, said in a statement. To the extent that these individuals are being detained and sent to facilities in states with far less protections than New Jersey, our members remain concerned about the availability of legal services, resources, and advocates to protect their rights in those states. So unfortunately, a downside to all this is that it appears that the closing of an ICE detention center does not necessarily free the ICE detainees uh, as long as ICE exists on a national level, which was something that I hadn't really um, thought about before. Um, but yeah, that's my update. Um, some good, some bad on those ICE contracts in New Jersey. Okay. So like there's some movement to be like, if you're, it's, it seems like what you're saying is that like, if they're not going to be there, some of the pushback mm -hmm. is that they'll be sent somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's like not, it's like, they'll just be shuffled around as long as the overall system is still yep. in place. It's like, what, how does it help them if they're just not in Jersey? Yeah, exactly. So I guess I hadn't really thought about that, right? Where, um, what the ICE contract, it's not that the center, yeah, it, it's a federal, ICE is a federal organization. So while they contract with a state facility to house a detainee, which we've talked about on the show is not like being here without a visa is, is a civil offense, right? We've, I think we've talked about that. And then keeping them in jail is just like, <laughs> I don't know. And he, it's, it's fucked up, but um, especially when they haven't committed any um, criminal offense. Um, but it's a, so ICE is a federal entity. Uh, so if they're can't be housed in one 
contracted facility, they'll just be shipped to another one, right? As long as they are under an ICE, I don't know, <laughs> under ICE detainment, as it were, which is something I hadn't realized. I hate that prison is yeah. the option, like the only option. You know, I'm not sure exactly what it could be. It could be, you know, in other countries, I guess they have these horrible camps that they keep refugees in or different locations that they have that are close to the border or, you know, definitely still fucked up places, but it's not jail. Um, and I just wonder if a system like that could be set up. You know, I'm sure there may be places in, in different cities of how they handle this, but jail being the option for people is just not okay. But shipping I, them back and forth doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. I think part of the issue is that they're not considered refugees, right? They're like, I think the reason they're jailed is because, and, and this isn't even always the way it's been. I think another time we talked about this on the show, we, we looked back and like, you know, 20 years ago or something this is when the crackdown started leaving people in detainment centers instead of just like waiting at home for a deportation hearing um it's because it's it's the criminalization of people you know people who aren't committing a criminal offense it's you know what i mean like or that's what it seems like um that's what it feels like and it's it's the dehumanization of a group of people it seems for very political reasons uh, really often as well, because we do have refugee camps, but they're not—they're not the the people that ICE targets aren't considered. I think eligible for that, or I think we have okay. refugee camps, but we have refugee programs. I should say rehou- like where we house refugees in various places. Okay. Yeah, but then even that, it's like it's so. Who gets to decide who even counts as a refugee? Mm-hmm. And like that can yeah. be so politically charged. And it's like depending on where you're from or the reason you're fleeing, right? It's your color, your mm-hmm. language, your religion, all of those. It's like someone is considered a refugee in some circumstances. And then there's these other people that are seen as just no matter what, you're seen as like a burden or a criminal or something. And then even if you are counted as a refugee, you know, you're still subject to a lot of discrimination and bad treatment because, you know, it's just, uh, I've said it before, it's like having borders is a relatively, it's a very new human invention compared to like the length of human history. Like people have to move around like, and that happens because of climate, it happens because of war, food sources moving you know but then when you have these hard and fast lines about who belongs where like inevitably this is the type of thing that's gonna happen and it's Mm -hmm. just it's really sad like I want to look back on some of the groups that were doing work around like like stop ice nj I can't Mm -hmm. remember their names but there were a couple we linked to on our social media I wonder like what they're doing now It seems like the work is never done. Yeah, I mean, as long as ICE exists as a federal entity, um, it really does seem like, uh, you know, working at the local level is only going to have minimal results, especially if only five states have banned it. Um, but yeah, so there is an organization, Jasmine, to your point, Abolish ICE NYNJ. Uh, and yeah, you can check them out to see the work they're doing. Uh, 
to work on this. I'm pulling it up, the information up right now. Sorry, I'm sounding distracted. They have a Twitter account, Abolish Ice underscore NYNJ. And let's see. Yeah, and the last tweet was mid-December, so they're still active. Uh, yeah. So check them out if you want to figure out ways to, to help get involved and help fight to free ICE detainees. So I'm going to play us into our first break of the episode with a song called I'm Free by the Soup Dragons. Uh, enjoy. Don't be afraid of your freedom. like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have our national news segment, Jasmine, you're up. So it's, it's not quite uh, one year since the extremist storm, the U.S. Capitol building, but it's coming up on that anniversary. It's hard to believe it's been so long. Um, I actually remember watching it happen live on the news. I think I was working at the time, but I had a screen open and I just remember the the way it felt to watch it happen in real time was just such an eerie, eerie sensation. Um, but back on January 10th, we had an episode um, where we talked in detail about uh, just the events of the day that unfolded um, when Trump supporters were trying to prevent um, the election results from being certified. They did not want Joe Biden to become the next president. Um, and a year later, like we know that they, they were not successful, um, but at the same time, we haven't got a fully complete picture of like exactly how many people were responsible. Like I know they're still trying to track some people down. Um, so this is an update from um, NBC News. The title is January 6th Committee Asked Supreme Court to Deny Trump Request to Shield Records. And it is written by Dartonoro Clark. Um, the Congressional Committee probing the January 6th riot asked the Supreme Court on Thursday to reject former President Donald Trump's request to shield his White House records from investigators. Although the facts are unprecedented, this case is not a difficult one. Trump attempts to overturn the current president's reasonable determination 
that the select committee is entitled to three tranches of presidential records responsive to its requests, the House committee said in a 44-page court filing. To the extent any novel questions linger in the background, this case would be a poor vehicle to address them. The court's review is unwarranted, and Trump's petition should be denied, the panel added. Trump asked the Supreme Court last week to block the National Archives from turning over any of his White House records to the January 6th committee after lower courts sided with the panel's efforts. The court is likely to seek a response from the National Archives before it decides whether to take the case. There is no deadline for the court to act. The House committee is pursuing a trove of documents related to the events of January 6th, including records of communications between the White House and the Department of Justice leading up to the attack on the Capitol. Trump has objected, claiming executive privilege over the documents, but President Joe Biden declined to deem the records privileged. Instead, Biden directed the National Archives to hand over the materials to the committee. The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled this month that Trump has not shown any specific harm that he would suffer from the disclosure of the documents. In addition, the appeals court said that while Trump retained limited authority to claim executive privilege, it wasn't strong enough to overcome Biden's determination that Congress has a legitimate need for the records. Trump's legal team has argued that the courts were wrong to find that the White House that the House committee has a legitimate legislative purpose in seeking the documents. Its real purpose isn't merely fact-finding, his attorneys have argued, but an attempt to seek information that would embarrass Trump. Earlier this week, the January 6th committee reached an agreement with the Biden White House to defer its request for some Trump records, indicating there were documents that Biden was not willing to turn over to the panel. The agreement mostly shields records that do not involve the events of January 6th, but were covered by the committee's request for documents from the Trump White House about the events of the day. Um, and just as an aside, um, at this point, there are over 700 people that have been arrested for having participated in the Capitol um, insurrection. Um, and this is some information from the Washington Post uh, from April of this year. Um, when compared with almost 2,900 other counties in the U.S., their analysis of the 250 counties where those charged or arrested live reveals that the counties that had the greatest decline in white population had an 18% chance of sending an insurrectionist to D.C., while the counties that saw the least decline in the white population only had a 3% chance. This finding holds even when controlling for population size, distance to DC, unemployment rate, and urban rural location. Put another way, the people alleged by authorities to have taken the law into their own hands on January 6th typically hail from places where non-white populations are growing the fastest. Um, so that was um, just a tidbit from a Washington Post article written by Eugene Scott on April 12, 2021. Um, so yeah, we're still waiting for 
this whole thing to finally end, but it's just been dragging on and on and on and more stuff keeps getting kicked down the road. That's fascinating, Jasmine. I hadn't heard that statistic about the likelihood and of or like, you know, motivation, I guess you could correlate between why a certain area would have um, a contingency that went to the insurrection. That's that's fascinating and like both not surprising and also just very, I think just speaks loud and clear about the priorities in this country. And as much as people say, you know, like animosity is based on, right. Like unemployment rate or like whatever boredom, it's like, it's not, (laughs) it's, it's been about race since the beginning of this country. Yeah, I couldn't find it because, and I was upset. I couldn't find it, but there was, uh, there were several articles that did a a much more detailed breakdown because the narrative is often, you know, it's almost become a punchline, like talking about economic anxiety, and it's like the people, like went through and were like a lot of these people that were in the crowd were people that were making good money, like they had good jobs, they were like managers or whatever, like they were not. Um, this big sea of super downtrodden people that had had enough. It was a lot of people that come from like their pri- their anxiety is about feeling like black and Hispanic people in particular, and also other non-white groups of people are becoming too strong in this country. Like that's what the problem is. And when you listen to, have y'all listened to um, some of the police officers, particularly the black police officers that were there? Like they've been giving some interviews lately about what that day was like now that some time has passed. I haven't recently, no. No, but I've seen the advertisement that that's happening. I haven't heard the interviews though. Yeah, there was one. I don't really listen to the Daily often, but the Daily had an episode recently with um, a black capital officer and he was just describing being in this sea of people that were like this n-word voted for joe biden and like just them all screaming stuff like that around him and feeling like he might die um so yeah i think that with these arrests like it's becoming more and more obvious that you know that narrative of like, oh, it's some poor downtrodden Joe Blow that just has nothing to live for. And that's why it's like, please, that's not what it's about. And they weren't all from some of the re- the regions that people stereotyped as being like, oh, they obviously all came from this type of place. It was people from very blue areas. There were people from this from New York that were in that crowd, like fire firemen, police officers. So, I don't know. What do you? What do y'all think is gonna come of the committee? I don't honestly. I'm maybe I'm on some conspiracy theory SSI shit, but I feel like it. You know, I feel like people in the committee are going to get picked off one way or another. Like nobody's. Oh gonna, my God, Reese! I, I'm sorry. I'm being so dismal, Oof. but it's been a whole fucking year, and these people literally got away with this, right? So. Anything is possible on the dark side. And some of them I, I, are getting normal- convicted. Not not enough, I'm sure, but some are getting real sentences, which is good. But when I say picked off, I mean like they will be coaxed to not be involved. There will be reasons. Okay. Be, you know, 
Okay. Like, I mean, it can't be very dark. Okay. I know, it can I go know. there. I'm not dead. I know. That, I'm, I'm laughing I mean. partly out of anxiety, not because it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying, I feel like they will be made to not participate um, the way that we need them to. And for various reasons, you know, it's like, you know, career suicide, I guess, for some people to really go there, which is part of the reason I feel like nothing's really happened. But um, and even though some people are being convicted, like the reality of the magnitude of what happened, because so much time has passed, has taken away from some of the intensity, I think that we had when we needed to have it, you know, and that is disheartening, because no matter how you frame this shit, it was an insurrection. It stopped a political process, a changing of the guards. Like this is not, it never was okay. And the fact that we dragged this shit out for a whole year, I've heard some conspiracy theorists saying it, it can happen. It can happen again. I mean, yeah. I definitely, I definitely agree that, you know, you have to strike while the iron is hot in a lot of these situations. And I, I remember not agreeing with the way um, like the current president made some remarks I don't remember specifically what he said, but they were kind of along the lines of like forgiveness and moving on and stuff like that. And I'm going, I'm going to find it because it was such a good interview, but um, there was this black scholar who was, and I've heard other people do it too, where they point out the moment that we're in and they talk about um, where America was at during reconstruction and a lot of the violence that happened at that time that was also about being upset that a large number of people that you assume should completely be powerless or have less power than you are now suddenly able to vote or like they're able to do these things and just the incredible violence that happened during that period in American history and she was like when that is happening that's not the time to like go easy or to be like oh let's just hold hands like you have there have to be swift consequences for people like that and i do see what you're saying reese about like there has been a lot of time that has passed and i i think it's good that some of these people are being caught but there's a lot of people that are emboldened by it like there was just a um a shooting in what was it denver and yeah, he, denver and he and he was someone who identified on social media as a straight up like white supremacists you know there's a lot of people that see that and even if the person dies who did it like they get emboldened because they're like yeah i'm gonna take up my weapons and i'm gonna do this and i'm gonna attack people and i just i don't think that this dragging out as long as it has is going i think you know sure it's good to have for the record in the future but you know, I, I think it's a shame that it's still dragging on this long. And it's like, you're a lot, you're deferring your request for the documents at to what point in the future? Like, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard that comparison to reconstruction. That's really interesting. I I'm sure not, I'm sure, but it, it seemed to me like Biden was taking it as his Gerald Ford moment of like forgiving Nixon, which was like, people were fucking pissed off about that, but it was like, you can't move on when you're continue, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, obviously it's not the same thing. <laughs> I I mean, yeah, it's not the same thing, but it's, I'm sure that's sort of like the tact he was taking. Um, but yeah, no, I think the political process is really interesting or the judicial process, I should say, because of how long these things do take. Um, just like it takes this long to build a case against someone. And I think, 
it doesn't always match up with how fast things need to move in order to make that statement you need to make. Um, which is unfortunate because it, it is, it is, it still feels weird. Like 12 months later to still be reading headlines about this person just, you know, went to trial or this person just got arrested or something like that. You know, uh, it, it is weird. It is a weird reminder. Um, yeah, I know. I know personally looking back on like we're almost at the year mark of it. Um, it was, it was very scary while it was happening, but it was also sort of surreal and, and weird. And it was like hard to contextualize. And I remember a little while later, like feeling like the magnitude of it actually hitting me later on. And I remember hearing, and I might've talked about this on the show earlier this year too, but I was talking to a friend of mine about what actually happened that day. And it was, it, there were, they were trying to stop the judicial, the, the, uh, political process, right. The, um, officially, uh, declaring Biden as the winner of the presidential election and that, you know, the next president and, there were, I, my friend was saying that like, we were so close to, to everything actually like going haywire, like beyond the violence of that day. Like the, I think it was like Nancy Pelosi or something. Like there were people that were like, Oh, you can, we can just continue this process here in our bunkers, but like the actual letter. And, but that would have created all sorts of conspiracy theories, right? Like, Oh, they did this underground. Like, you know, they're supposed to do it in the chambers. And it was like that forcing of the political process out of the space where it's supposed to happen was like, was a factor that could have like, if they had declared him the president, not in that space, it could have been totally invalid and voided and actually have created more issues. So like there were heroes that day. And like, in the sense that they, that the fact that they went back to do their job in the face of that violence and get it done that day was, was I think bigger than I realized the actual day of as well. Yeah, it was really. I, I still. Did y'all watch it live? Like, did you see? Were you on the yes. live stream when it Clips was happening? Yeah, clips here and yeah, there. Yeah, I, I, I remember I was sitting working, and then I started getting texts from all these people like, "Are you watching this?" And I turned around, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I had it playing on my laptop, and it was before anything happened. And I'll, you know, I will never forget like the journalist. I do not remember her name. But I was like, wow, like if I were her, I would be shitting bricks, you know, and I like I definitely think, you know, she was a white woman. So that definitely helped her maybe not be as much of a like visible, like we need Mm -hmm. to attack this person. But, you know, she was doing her job. And then it's like you see like this trickle. It was like one person like walking across, you know, and I I have visited D.C. and like been in those like areas like on tours and I was like I remember walking on that floor in that room with my friend you know and they're like walking in and she was still like she was like going to try to like hide but was also interviewing people like asking these people questions as she was like uh this is clearly not safe and I was like man like just being like it, it was just the most and you know people who listen to the show like they know that I'm I you know I I tend to be I'm not like a rainbows and happy sunshine type person (laughs) um 
but even like there were some people that were talking about that day or about like AOC or like politicians that, you know, they're not necessarily my favorite people or people that I think of as like they're gonna, you know, be our savior. But at the same time, I'm like, look, these are people where had they not been shown to safety at the exact moment when they when they were like we were very close to seeing people being like killed on camera mm-hmm. because that was their intent you know and there's nothing funny about that or like you know that's not a small thing to be facing when you're just going and doing your job you know and it's really i remember AOC did that really long um Instagram video where she was describing what had happened and there were people being very shitty to her about it and i'm like you just don't know like things like this happen you know like when people successfully find some politician that they hate and they want to make an example like they erected like a gallows or something or like a structure for a a noose like on the lawn yeah that's not a joke now mob mentality is also very real a group of people who rile each other up like that and that don't have um, that Absolutely. Are able to, yeah, to just keep building that 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 energy and that intensity is very very scary. Yeah, I don't. This is a bit of an aside, but did you watch the HBO doc about Woodstock '99? Uh, no, but I know that that got really bad. <laughs> that got super fucked up. <laughs> As a guy that was there, that was like, I never would have thought I would be a person that would be in that type of a mob. But he was like, suddenly, I was like setting stuff on fire, like. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there like, huh? Like, what do you yeah. mean you were just blowing you know, shit up, stuff on fire? Like, yeah. But yeah, I, that's what happened, you know? And like, there were women and young girls in some cases, like, assaulted violently, mm-hmm. you know, by this crowd. They don't know who did it. Yeah. It's just this hyped up testosterone, like, I'm taking, like, you took something from me. And like, that to me is such a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching it thinking it was like a movie at first. And then I was like, oh, no, this is the news. Um, Like, this can't even be real. But what you're saying is right. Like, they had intentions on murdering people. They had intentions on killing everybody that was there, stopping the process. And, you know, I hate to be so dark and dismal, but what would have happened if we'd seen that? Like, we would not be the same people we are today. And I just feel like, you know, the fact that nothing's been done, it's about to be a year. When people revisit this, it's going to be all over the news again. People are going to be showing videos. Think about how many people will be activated to go do some wild shit. Yeah, they're you doing know? a special on CNN, I think, on the anniversary. And I'm like, I I wonder if that's a great idea. I don't know. Violence breeds violence. And shit is not okay right now. People are suffering. We right back in, you know, this COVID situation. Things are not better, you know. So I just, you know part of what I was saying earlier is because when people see this again, when we relive this again, when we go through this and people realize that this is where we are, I just feel like it's just going to bring me more people out to do more violence and do more crazy things because it's like, why the hell not? Like, and that's not okay. That's why we have to, like you said, move swift on things like this and actually um, hold people accountable for what they do. Yeah. Um, And on that note, like, yes, we will, I'll put up the links to all of the episodes that we're referencing so you can listen to the original one and then listen back to this one. And again, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is a song that expresses how I feel not only about that story in general, but 
a lot of things going on right now. This is Weary by Solange. Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our world news segment, I will be revisiting the story of the Haitian president who was assassinated um, earlier this year. Um, this article was um, up on CNN.com. The authors are Matt Rivers, Natalie Galan, and Etant Duplan. It's titled, We Were Cheated, Framed, and Scammed. And it's actually a recent article um, on CNN. So it starts like this. The smell of raw sewage and food waste permeates the air in the entrance to Haiti's National Penitentiary in downtown Port-au-Prince. Its source is the exposed pipe that visitors must walk over as a liquid nick slides through the street. A pat down of even our heads from quiet security guards follows, and then a large metal door swings open, revealing a courtyard on the other side. In this world exclusive, CNN came to the prison hoping to speak to a certain group of inmates whom the government has refused to make available until now. Some of the 26 Colombians and two Haitian Americans that investigators say entered Haitian President Moise's bedroom in the early morning hours of July 7th and killed him in a hail of gunfire. Haitian authorities call these men assassins. They call themselves innocent. CNN was allowed to enter the penitentiary after months of negotiations with only paper and pen and told to wait in a wooden hut in the prison courtyard. 20 minutes later, five Colombian men, clearly not expecting our visit, walked toward us in shorts, t-shirts, and dark blue croc style sandals, looking gaunt and unhealthy. Their message was consistent over an hour-long conversation in their native Spanish tongue. They are innocent, and they have been tortured, and they have been set up. All five men said they arrived in Haiti in June, about a month before the assassination that would upturn their lives and throw the country's political landscape into chaos. All former Colombian soldiers, they told CNN they were hired as private security by a company called CTU. Promised anywhere from $2,700 to $3,000 a month, they took on the job. According to the five men, CNN spoke to the wives and several others. They were never paid a dime. CTU has not responded to CNN's prior requests for comment, and it's unclear the company even still exists. 
We were told we were going to provide security for the Haitian presidential candidate, said one of the men. We had no idea what was going to happen. In Haiti, they were part of a group of two or more dozen Colombians who lived and worked together in a compound in the capital city of Port-au-Prince, not that far from where the president lived. In the dead of the night on July 7th, this group was loaded into a convoy that would rumble up Perlin Road to the presidential compound. The president would be fatally shot shortly afterwards. His wife, First Lady Martine Moisey, was severely injured in the gunfire as well. CNN asked the five prisoners repeatedly for more details about the assassination, including what happened during the assassination, who was behind it, what their individual involvement specifically was, and what they did in the hours after the killing. They insisted they were not responsible for the president's death, but declined to answer further questions or go into details about the fatal morning for two common reasons. First, that none currently have legal representation, and second, they fear for their lives. We are stuck in this prison, said one man. We have to stay here. I will scream out loud all that I know when I can leave here. But while we're here, we are terrified of reprisals. I'm scared for what they might do to me, but also for what they might do to my family in Colombia, said another man. Sometime after Moisey was assassinated in the early morning hours, the five men interviewed by CNN left the same com- left in the same convoy. Their vehicles were captured on cell phone video shot by several locals in the area. But they didn't make it very far before they were boxed in by Haitian security forces, they said. Forced out of their cars, they took shelter in a nearby empty building. Hours later, they fled out the back of the building and up a steep hill, making their way to the the Taiwan embassy. According to a Taiwan foreign ministry and a source in Haitian security forces, the group of Colombians forced their way inside, tying up two guards in the process. But Haitian law enforcement officers tackled them down and they turned themselves in. Once in custody, the beatings began, the prisoners allege. One of the Colombians were stabbed multiple times by Haitian police, while several others were pistol-whipped over the head, they said. Others were beaten, one attacked so brutally that his face would become disfigured by the blows, they recounted to CNN. The men said before they were transferred to the notorious National Penitentiary, they were held in an undisclosed location for more than three weeks. They held us somewhere else for 25 days, handcuffed in pairs. We went to the bathroom on the floor, one of the prisoners said. The men said the beatings were continuous and brutal, and they feared for their family's safety back in Colombia. Do you know how hard it is when they show you a picture of your family on a cell phone? Asked one man, tears welling up in his eyes. We had to do what they said. And they were... And what they were asked to do, said each man, was sign their names to official statements they did not give and which they were written in a language they could not read. I was sitting quietly, not saying a word, and the officer was writing my statement for me, said one man. He kept looking at me and writing more even though I hadn't said anything. They were writing and we were quiet. He then signed a name to a document written in French, a language that they could not understand, he said. All five men alleged that they had been forced to sign declarations under duress. The real people responsible for this are outside the prison and were stuck in here. We were cheated, framed, and scammed, said one man. Haiti's National Police did not reply to CNN's request for comment. Asked about the allegations of torture and police custody, a Haitian federal government spokesperson said the government has nothing to hide, pointing out that CNN had full permission to visit the Colombians. The same spokesperson denied that any official testimony was recorded without the Colombians' knowledge of what was being written. Based on credible information, they were provided translators so they understood what to sign and what not, said the spokesperson. 
The five men have been held in Haiti's National Penitentiary since late summer. The conditions of the prison are visibly horrific, with multiple men crowded into a single cell. Sanitation appeared to be an afterthought. Rats scampered across the grounds. Our lives are worth nothing here, one of the Colombian prisoners told us. The men say they receive one plate of rice per day, or sometimes corn. Each says they have lost more than 30 pounds. Some are noticeably losing their hair, leaving patchy clumps on their heads, a clear sign of malnutrition. It's inhumane what's happening to us in here, one of the men said in tears. Haiti's leading human rights organization, the National Human Rights Defense Network, also described general conditions in the prison as inhumane. The prison doesn't have enough food, gas to cook, and adequate access to care, despite receiving more and more prisoners in the past 12 months, they said in a report released last month. The government did not respond to questions about why the men had not been formally charged. But more than five months after the assassination, none of the men have legal representation, a prerequisite to having their testimonies heard by a judge. They say the Haitian judicial system has only offered them junior lawyers with whom they could not communicate. They sent me some lawyer in his second semester who didn't speak Spanish, said one of the men. I'm not going to trust him with my life. According to a person close to the case, the lawyers provided to represent the men were not students, but rather apprentices. Before becoming practicing lawyers, law graduates must serve what is typically a two-year apprenticeship. Though they were not fully qualified lawyers and have little experience, their apprentices are commonly appointed to represent those who cannot afford a private attorney, according to Brian Kankanen, an expert with decades of experience working with Haiti's legal system. So they were defending serious felony cases when they were not allowed to appear in a simple contract case because they were not yet practicing attorneys, said Concanon. They have no budget for investigation and typically get no compensation for their time. The men had hoped the Colombian government would provide them with some legal assistance, but that has not happened so far. Haiti's government has also said the responsibility lies with Colombia now. We hope government officials of Colombia provide lawyers to the prisoners so they can be examined by a judge, said the Haitian government spokesperson, adding they cannot be officially questioned without an attorney present. The Colombian federal government in Bogota did not respond to CNN's request for comment, and the Colombian embassy in Haiti referred our questions to the foreign ministry. A public statement from late July said Colombian government representatives met with the Colombian suspects with an attorney present. However, the men were spoke to. However, the men we spoke to said that none of the Colombians in the prison currently legally have representation. Adding insult to injury, the men say they never received an explanation of legal basis for their long detention. At no point has someone in the legal process looked me in the face and said, this is why you're here, said one of the men. We obviously know why we're in here, but there is no rule of law or due process here. Everyone should be innocent until proven guilty, and we have the right to have legal representation. The prisoners wrapped up the hour-long conversation with a message to the international community. Please find the love in your hearts to understand our situation and give us some benefit of the doubt, said one man. The best thing that could happen in this is that this is brought to the international tribunal. When I am out of this country, I will tell the world everything I know. Oh, yeah, that was really hard to read first. And um, sad to say, I'm, I'm not really surprised. Um, what do you girls think? So, Reese, can you... Am I so this group of men from Colombia? Is that right? There are they essentially 
being scapegoated for the assassination. Is that what it sounds like? That's that's what it sounds like from their mm-hmm. testimony to CNN, which is the first time we've heard anything about from them or about them since this has happened. Mm-hmm. I hadn't I hadn't so heard that were, update. Yeah. Yeah, the story was from December 18th, so it's pretty recent. Um, and not very often do we get to hear, you know, the prisoner's side in international cases yeah. like this. So yeah. I thought it was very interesting for CNN to be able to go and speak to them. But it's just it's heart-wrenching to know that they don't even have access to any representation at all. Um, yeah. I guess I expected a little bit more from the Colombian government, but I don't know. Haitian government? No, the Colombian government, from their government to assist them in this trial. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, and I mean, um, it's that thing where, you know, the U.S. isn't the only government guilty of it, but it's, you know, treating prisoners as a place to throw people away, right? Not as that they're in your custody, so you need to make, you know, you need to take care of them. Um, Yeah, and it's it's grotesque and it's, it's tragic. Yeah, and, like, there's so many people that are sitting, you know, that have not been convicted of something. Like, anybody can be accused of something, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and some of us are a lot more vulnerable to that happening. Like, you're in a place, you don't speak the language, you don't know the culture, you're probably, you know, struggling to get by, or somebody sold you a dream about what you were going to be doing in another place. It's very easy for somebody to say, well, yeah, he did it, and then you're just in limbo, you know. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Oh, well, Emily, please grace us with some good news about COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I said I said earlier off off mic that, you know, there's it's never good news about COVID, but um and you know, I've been avoiding doing anything related to COVID as good news for a very long time because I think we all learned pretty early on that things change very quickly and no one really knows anything about what is happening or what's going to happen at any point. Um that being said, I think a lot of us are on edge heading into 2022 with the current Omicron COVID surge. So I thought I'd take the chance to spread some optimism at the risk of looking like a fool um, shortly down the road. Um, so this good news story comes from a December 30th New York Times story by Adil Hassan titled, South Africa says that it has passed its fourth wave of cases and counts few added deaths. The article explains, quote, The South African government said Thursday that data from its health department suggested that the country had passed its Omicron peak without a major spike in deaths, offering cautious hope to other countries grappling with the variant. The speed with which the Omicron-driven fourth wave rose, peaked, and then declined has been staggering, said Farid Abdullah of the South African Medical Research Council. Peak in four weeks and precipitous decline in another two. This Omicron Omicron wave is over in the city of uh, Tishwane. It was a flash flood more than a wave. The rise in deaths over the period was small, and in the last week, officials said marginal. Some scientists were quick to forecast the same pattern elsewhere. We'll be in for a tough January as cases will keep going up and peak and then fall fast, said Ali uh, Mokdad, a University of Washington epidemiologist who is a former Centers for Disease Control and Prevention scientist. While cases will still overwhelm hospitals, he said he expects that the proportion of hospitalized cases will be lower than in earlier waves. Omicron bearing dozens of troubling mutations was first identified in Botswana and South Africa in late November. 
It rapidly became dominant in South Africa, sending case counts skyrocketing to a pandemic peak, averaging more than 23,000 cases a day by mid-December, according to the Our World in Data project at Oxford University. Quote, in South Africa, overall case counts have been falling for two weeks, plummeting 30% in the last week to an average of less than 11,500 a day. Confirmed cases declined in all provinces except Western Cape and Eastern Cape, the data showed, and there was a drop in hospitalizations in all provinces except Western Cape. There are many caveats. Uh, the case figures may, must, uh, might have been distorted by reduced testing during the holiday season, and many people in the most affected area had some measure of immunity, either from vaccination, prior infection, or both, that might have protected them from serious illness. However, research teams in South Africa, Scotland, and England have found that Omicron infections more often result in mild illness than earlier variants of the coronavirus, causing fewer hospitalizations. South African officials last week ended tracing efforts and scrapped quarantine for people who were possibly exposed but not experiencing symptoms. Containment strategies are no longer appropriate. Mitigation is the only viable strategy, the government said then. On Thursday, the government announced an end to its midnight to 4 a.m. curfew. Um, still, gatherings are limited to 1,000 people indoors with appropriate social distancing and 2,000 people outdoors. Face coverings in public places are mandatory. And those are the South African regulations for anyone listening, um, different than in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it's disease spreading is not good news, but, um, for anyone who's really anxious seeing the numbers and the cases rising, like I do encourage you to take a step back from continuously checking that, you know, do your best to stay safe and, um, not get infected and not spread to others, but try to not get overwhelmed by the data, you know? Um, and I'd also like to highlight a Twitter account actually that I recommend getting some of your, or mixing into your COVID news. Um, it's at sailor scout or, uh, sailor Roo scout or something. S A I L O R R O O S C O U T run by a person who uses the pseudonym Chai C H I S E. Um, this is a person who helped develop the Moderna vaccine actually, but they use a pseudonym to avoid being doxxed online. Um, and inputmag.com was able to confirm this person's identity. Um, and again, just didn't want to provide too much identifying information about them. Um, so they, they post a lot about the data that's coming out, but from a specifically optimistic point of view, um, which I find really refreshing and a really like an important counterbalance for my own mental health to all like the, what feels like the majority of media outlets that like to plug into your fear center. Um, because, you know, it, it makes you click on things and it makes the money and things like that. And of course, like, you know, there's good and there's bad with everything, but I do recommend mixing this person's um, optimism into your daily COVID <laughs> uh, news stories. Uh, there you go, guys. That is my good news for, uh, I guess, as we're heading into 2022, stay safe out there. Wow. Well, thank you for the good news. That is in uh, the source, so we can all try to look for some optimism at this time. We were all going to say what we hope for in the new year, so hey. I, I, I have a minute before I have to go. So I'm okay, just going to yeah, I'm just going <laughs> to say, you know, for the new year, I hope that we see more worker solidarity and solidarity with workers to actually, you know, bring some of the things that we see happening to a halt and some, you know, positive changes. So if you're plugged into labor organizing, if you're not like, please get into it. 
Um, Because clearly, like, they need us. Like the powers that be need workers for the world to mm-hmm. go around. So we have a lot of power as workers and as people who support them. So in the new year, I hope that we all recognize that, work with that, and build on it. Beautiful. Nice. Emily, um, I guess, I, yeah, I'll go next and then you can close this out, Reese. Uh, for 2022, I hope that. Uh, COVID continues to become milder. (laughs) Um, And I hope that uh, more people worldwide have access to vaccines. And I also hope that the governments of the world continue to work together towards a cleaner and greener future. And uh, hopefully not as hot as it can, as it might get. Um, My hope in 2022 is definitely that more of the world has access to vaccines. I think we covered that a lot this year in stories, and I think Mm -hmm. it's really awful that we're at this state in the game and that's still an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. I also hope that we can actually start building reform for police that is real and significant um, because it's never going to end if we don't start coming up with you know, something. I know I recently did that Times article and they found a lot of stuff. It's tough work, but I definitely think that we need to work on building our communities better um, by addressing issues in real time. And then finally, I hope that, you know, me and my showmates uh, do everything that we want to do in the next year because it's been such a cool journey seriously it's been a cool cool journey serious too yeah we've all been through so many transitions you know in this last year and so I just really hope that everything we're trying to do comes to fruition with like with finesse and ease yeah and I hope there's ease for everyone who is struggling in this moment so right yeah I feel like that Paul Rudd meme where it's like look at us hey <laughs> we doing a damn what, thing, right? Who would have thought? Who thought? <laughs> right? We're big, we're big in Lebanon, apparently. Shout out yeah. to Lebanon. I got that even. Thanks for your support. Who, who would have thought we'd be there? Not me. You know, we worldwide, baby. We worldwide. You know, figuratively, and even at this moment, we worldwide. You know, so yes, I hope the show has continued success, and Radio Free Brooklyn has continued success. I'm so grateful yeah. for this opportunity. Same. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Our final track today is a shout out to the new year. This is Pink with Raise Your Glass. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Happy New Year. Happy New Year.